If you have your Bible, let's turn to Mark. This morning, we're going to begin a new series in the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest of the, the Gospel accounts. It's, it's written by one who is known as John Mark to those in the early church. He's a friend to the apostles. He's a partner of both Peter and Paul. And though he's not an apostle himself, he's kind of of what you'd call the, the apostolic band. Um, we know about Mark from the book of Acts chapter 13, where he accompanies Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. In the book of Acts, we find out that there's a little bit of a rift relationally, maybe even ministry philosophy between Paul and Mark. And Mark says, well, I'm going to head on back. And Barnabas goes with him, which is a bit of a surprise to us, except we find out later in Colossians that, that Barnabas and Mark are cousins, which explains some of their connection. If there was a rift, Paul confirms later on in his letters that 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 rift has been mended and the two are, are in close relationship together again. First Peter, we find Peter referring to this mark as, as a son, like a spiritual son. And there's, they are partners in ministry in, the, in, in Rome where they're also friends. Now, multiple church fathers tell us that Mark is using Peter's instruction to write his gospel. They say it like this, Mark was Peter's interpreter. In fact, they are really close. And the fact is that this book was written in the late 50s AD in Rome at the request of the Roman church. They said, Mark, could you record for us the, the summary of Peter's message about the Christ? This is, in that sense, also the first of the Gospels that's written. If you were with us during the summer as we walk through 2 Peter, you'll kind of detect some of the fingerprints of, of Peter. Uh, some people have described this gospel sort of like a, a slideshow. You come back from summer vacation, and you can't summarize everything, but hey, here's my pictures. This is something of what it looks like. It's a, it's a collage. It's a mosaic. Peter, I mean, excuse me, Mark is not interested in giving you every detail. He's interested in telling you the big story. So it's a fast-paced narrative where he records particular events that are very much akin to, hey, this is what Jesus' life was like. This is what his work was like. In fact, Mark is much more concerned with the work of Jesus than he is with the words of Jesus. And so we pick up Mark chapter 1 where it all began. We'll read 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." This is God's word. Let's pray. And so now, Father, as we come 
to your word, we recognize that on this day you've chosen, again, to use a, a sinful, crooked stick to speak and proclaim your word. And so I pray that you would use me as wicked and evil as I am to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. And Father, we also pray for ears that we might hear what your spirit says to the church. <clears throat> we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible teaches us that God took on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. We, we call that, or theologians call it, the doctrine of the incarnation. It's actually what separates Christianity from every other world religion. In fact, the Christian faith rises or it falls. It, it matters or it doesn't matter on this one issue. Did God draw near to human beings in flesh? Like in a literal God-man who lived and walked on the earth. Our Hindu friends, our Buddhist friends would say that God is sort of like a divine spark in all of us. And so to them, there is a kind of incarnation of the divine in all of us all the time. So they would say that God is very near in the form of a spark, but certainly not in his own body. Whereas both Judaism and Islam would say, on the other hand, no, 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 that's crazy. God is so transcendent. He's so far away that the incarnation of the divine and the human is utterly impossible. So the message of the Bible is that God really is transcendent, but he is so profoundly loving, so intent on saving his people, restoring a right relationship with himself, that he, the transcendent God, became man. Paul says it really beautiful in, beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The incarnation. And we take it for granted a once-for-all event wherein the eternal, infinite God took on the frailty of human flesh. God became human in Jesus to redeem those who were born in the flesh. One pastor said it this way, this is the universe-sundering, history-altering, worldview-shattering, life-transforming event that sets Christianity off from every other religion and every other philosophy on the face of the earth. And so Mark opens with this. The good news begins when God draws near. We'll break our text down this morning under three main points. The messenger, the message, and the mission. We start with the messenger. Why does Mark begin his book like this? Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. Does he mean this is the beginning of my narrative book about Jesus no, Mark and every other first century Christian under Roman rule knew that the word gospel was a, was a word that was full of meaning. If you've been around the church for very long, then the word gospel begins to sound like Christian jargon. Eric, he's going to preach the, the gospel 
I got to believe the gospel. We need to live the gospel. We want to be about the gospel. We are gospel driven. And so we use that term almost like it's shorthand for salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's true. But we should know, first of all, that this was not originally a Christian word. The Romans used this word euangelion, which we translate gospel, as if it was simply an issue of glad tidings. So a major military victory happens or a new emperor rises to the throne. Everybody celebrates. It's a festival. Mark, writing to people who live in Rome, deliberately chooses the exact words that is used for the emperor. The gospel means good news, but not just interesting, helpful, hey, it's my birthday, let's have a cake. No, Mark says this is the beginning of the historical event that changed the world. So when he says the beginning of the gospel, he says it was God who initiates redemption for us because the king of creation broke into human suffering. And listen, if you have nothing else, but you have that, it is the most comforting place to start. Think about it. The God who made all things, who watched as his creation marred the very things that he had made through sin, through evil, rebellion, through hard-heartedness and, and pride. Mankind who brought sin into the world, it's God who, by grace, says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to initiate salvation. He who was not ever vulnerable in all eternity past chose to make himself vulnerable. He who deserved no suffering chose to enter your suffering and suffer more than all of us. If you're suffering today, if you have any measure of grief in your life at all, if your heart is broken over anything, your comfort begins with this. A loving Heavenly Father chose to enter this fallen world and suffer more severely than you would ever suffer. So that every grief and every heartache that you would ever experience is actually redeemed in the direction of hope. Well, it's the beginning of the gospel. And here it is. Verse 1, Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Son of God. Everybody notices in comparing this gospel with the other gospels that Mark is intent on helping you and I see it's like a trumpet blasting to declare that the king has arrived to come and reign on his throne. And everybody in the context of Rome completely understood that. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means that he's the long-awaited, foretold one to finally come out of Israel and bring salvation. This David-like king who will reign not for a 40-year period, but for all eternity. And that king was and is the very substance of God. 
Mark opens with this clue that God somehow dwells in in three persons. Here's the messenger. Those who knew the Old Testament were expecting, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so we read this portion of Isaiah chapter 40 in our Old Testament so that you'd see it in context. In fact, Isaiah 40 is one of the most important messages of the Old Testament pointing to the Christ. Long ago, God said, before the arrival of Messiah, I'll send a messenger who will prepare the way. The low places will come up. The high places will come down. I'm I'm somehow going to make it so that you can see the path clearly. And incidentally, Mark takes a compilation of Old Testament quotes from Exodus, from Malachi, from Isaiah, and he cites them all and says they, they they come from Isaiah. Because Isaiah is the most important of the writing prophets in the Old Testament. God spoke through Isaiah just as he had spoken through others. Rabbis during this period between the Old Testament and the New Testament began to compile these quotes. And they saw that they, they're all pointing to an Elijah type figure. Do you remember Elijah? First Kings. He's dressed exactly the same way that John is dressed. It's a figure who's going to come and he's going to herald the true Messiah. What was his task? To prepare the hearts of God's people for the reception of the Messiah. More on that in just a second. But first, I want you to notice how immediate Mark is from verse 3 to verse 4. Then suddenly, verse 4, John appeared. It's ultimately about the coming of the king. And that is that the good news begins when God draws near. And so this messenger is promised. Now, what did he say? Let's look at the message. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Like the Christ, Baptist is not... John's last name. He's called the baptizer because he uses this this water sign to accompany his message. I should also tell you, he is not the founder of the Southern Baptist Convention. Nobody knows for sure why John used this system. But here's what we know. Baptism is a visible sign of the very message that he preaches. You can really summarize his message with one single word. Repent. That's how John prepares the way for the coming Messiah. That's how he clears a path for folks to come to Jesus because he tells them, your sin, your pride, your arrogance are the major obstacles in relationship to the God who is drawing near to save you. Two images explain John's message. You got water and wilderness. What's the significance of of water? In in my inquirer's class, I talk about these Old Testament images of cleansing with water so that when John comes on the scene, we recognize that he's not the one who invented this whole thing. 
Jewish people understood long ago that water symbolizes cleansing, but also it symbolizes the need to be cleansed. So when you enter the temple, you wash. You offer a sacrifice. You wash. You eat. You wash. In fact, the Jews practiced several ceremonial washings, several baptizos, before John arrived on the scene. But for Jews, actually, baptism is most thought about as a big ceremonial rite for Gentiles. Like if a non-Jew wants to come and worship Yahweh, he's got to exercise this proselyte baptism. William Hendrickson said it was, it was intended to be a fundamental change of mind and heart. That's what it's supposed to symbolize. You dirty Gentile want to come and worship our God? Well, you got to be washed. And Jews, of course, thought of Gentiles as filthy. And so for a Gentile to become ceremonially clean, water is applied, which was meant to say, well, repentance has really taken place. The pagan now wants to worship the Lord. He's turned to Yahweh. He's got to be washed. What makes John's message so striking? And let's be really clear. John is super popular. Like crowds are coming to him from Jerusalem, from Judea, to be baptized. In fact, church people are coming out. But what makes John's message so startling is that John says, you know, it's not just the pagans who need to be converted. It's the children of Abraham. It's the the church people. In fact, it's the very people who think that they are so clean that need to be cleansed. And the message was this, it starts with your heart. And repentance is a, is a matter of your heart, and only God can do the work of actually cleansing you. He reminds them of what they should have known all along. God doesn't really want your rituals. He wants your broken and contrite heart. And so how is repentance connected to the forgiveness of sins? Because repentance is a place where you begin to realize that even your white lies, even your hidden pride, even your jealousy, that well-disguised bitterness, all of those sins that nobody sees or knows that you think of as, well, there's just not a big deal. John says, well, those are the very things that are more damning than you ever dared to fear. Repentance is a place where you, where you say, well, even if mom and dad told me that I was a good little boy or a good little girl, and even if I've gone to church my whole life and I say my prayers and I eat my vegetables, my heart is so far from God that he would have to do a work of salvation in me. I must turn to the Lord. And the water symbolizes that all of us are filthy. All of us need deep soul cleansing. But it's only God who can do it. There's two images. Water and wilderness. Verse 3. Isaiah tells us that there's going to be a voice crying in the wilderness. Verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. And you and I read that and we just kind of gloss over it. What's an irrelevant detail? 
Jews in John's day understood completely the image. How come? Because they know their own history. The wilderness is where the people of God first met God. Where did Jacob first come face to face with the Lord and wrestle him and come to know him as the Lord in the wilderness? Where did Moses at the burning bush come to meet God face to face in the wilderness? Where did the nation of Israel begin to understand what it means to have a relationship, to move from being a distant God to to living as a son of God? It was Mount Sinai in the wilderness. One commentator points out John's call to repentance and his call to come out to the wilderness to be baptized are two aspects of the same reality. It's 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 a call to renew sonship in the wilderness. In Exodus, of course, you remember, God calls the people of Israel his son, and he calls them out of Egypt, and then God separated those people by a summons to walk through the waters of the Red Sea. Those same waters that destroyed the Egyptian armies are a mark of God's grace. They're a mark of God's favor on his beloved son Israel. And then on the other side of the waters, what did they meet? The desert, the wilderness, and that's actually the place that over the next 40 years they will be shaped and formed. They will grow and learn how to live like a son, how to live like a daughter, no longer a slave, but one who really belongs. So John's out in the wilderness saying, I'm calling you back to be separated and cleansed. I'm calling you back to the wilderness, the place where in judgment you failed with disobedience and rebellion, and yet in my mercy, your sins were forgiven. John says, I'm calling you to exchange your pride for your humility, disobedience and rebellion for a brand new beginning because because the same God who is willing to extend mercy to your forefathers is willing to extend grace to you. And if you want to understand why people were falling all over themselves to get out to the wilderness, to leave Jerusalem, to leave Judea, it's for this reason. Because the Old Testament prophets repeatedly looked back at the Exodus event and they repeatedly looked forward to the coming salvation of God and they did both with the expectation that the unveiled Messiah would come in the wilderness. John's out there saying, the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit is close. To be sure, John's not the one who invented a spiritual summons to come to the wilderness. He's just reminding them of a key theme of all of Scripture. This is how it relates to you. The wilderness really is the quintessential place where you meet God. I'm not saying you need to pack your bags and move to Chihaw or Sipsi. No, I'm actually saying that this is life. In the Bible, the wilderness is the desert. It's nothing like Chiha or Sipsi. This is a place that can't support life, where you can't feed yourself, where you will die of thirst. It's a place you'll die unless God 
would do something miraculous. And yet in the Bible, this desert wilderness is the place of your deepest spiritual growth. That's true in your own life. If you have ears to hear, then this desert theme, this message of John is meant to be a deep comfort for you. You want to meet the Lord? You want to know him personally and intimately? Do not be surprised if he loves you enough to take you to the desert. Because it's in those desert places, spiritually speaking, where you are confronted with the magnitude and the weight of your own sin. How did I get myself to this place? How did I make such a mess of God's blessings? How did I squander his love? And yet in a profound and wonderful way, the wilderness is the place where humbled and desperate you learn to lay down your pride, to beg for God's help, to say there's only one person, one being who could ever possibly sustain me in my life in this desert. You know this to be true, don't you? The wilderness is the place where you learn how powerless, how weak, how needy, and frail you really are. It's actually the place where you begin to see that he's the king, and you're not. And so the gospel begins for the first time, or the 500th time, when you come to repentance. It's about the coming of a king. The good news begins when God draws near. And so we've covered the messenger and the message. We close with the mission. Verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I mentioned that he looks like Elijah in his clothes. But what's the point? John is a man of the wilderness. It's not really just about his clothes being like Elijah. But it's that he's a man out in the wilderness who cries out with this exact same message. And you are meant to see that John makes it his life calling to live in the wilderness and how many of us are dying to get out of the wilderness. And John says, no. It's actually a great place to live, to be a humble, dependent servant. And his mission is exemplified in his words. To be clear, he's not saying go move to the desert. He's saying learn what humility and dependence looks like. In terms of popularity, I don't really know Twitter or that thing that's called X now. I don't really know it. But I think 50 million followers would be a lot of followers. John is that kind of popular. In fact, later on in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is teaching. The chief priests and the scribes are trying to to trap Jesus by asking him a, a question. Hey, whose authority are you speaking from? And Jesus says, sure, I'll be happy to answer your question. Let me just ask you one quick question. You answer it, I'll answer that one. Was John's baptism from God or was it from man? The religious leaders are struck. They turn, start talking to themselves. Well, we can't say that it's from God because then... They'll say, then why'd you let him be killed? We can't say it's from men because he's so popular that they'll stone us to death. You need to hear that popularity before we turn to his words. Because if John misunderstood who he was, then he could have easily flirted with his fame. 
his own importance. Look at verse 7. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So to be clear, he's using an illustration that's culturally relevant to them. Jewish slaves, those who had sold themselves into slavery in Israel were required to do every bit of service but not touch the nasty feet of their master. That was reserved for the nasty Gentile. That was his job. The lowest of the low. And John says, I'm not even worthy of that place. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm here to point to the Christ. If you think about the things that John says throughout the other Gospels, he says things like this, I must decrease, he must increase. Likewise, he says, I'm going to confess it. I'm going to be really clear. I'm not the Christ. And if John would say that sincerely, and he was the one. John was the one who was foretold from long ago, known in his day, celebrated even by Jesus as as one of the greatest among men. Well, then this lesson is true for the rest of us who are far less than John. It's a great lesson for pastors, for Sunday school teachers, for musicians and worship leaders and Bible study teachers, for small group leaders. Anybody who's known or appreciated for what they do in the church, the great wisdom with which you speak, the service that you give to the Lord for his hurting people who are confused and and needy, somebody's going to look at you and they're going to say, you are so wise and your teaching is so helpful and your service to the Lord is worthy of honor. We need to record you. We need to get a camera for you. We need to get some bigger crowds for you. How can I help tee you up so that you can be the man or you can be the woman? And it is tempting to believe it. To get bothered if you do not receive the respect and the honor that you deserve. It's tempting to think that you're the point. Kevin DeYoung said it this way, you are not the point, you are the pointer. And until you get that, you will not be a mature follower of Christ. Until you get that, you will not be a happy follower of Christ. Mark will show us in the coming weeks and months how much superior Jesus is to John, is to you. But one of them is right here. John says, I offer you water. It's absolutely external. They're pour water over people. Jesus offers a baptism which is internal, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which isn't some second blessing after your conversion. No. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit that's the only thing that can cleanse you from the inside out. John offers a sign, and Jesus offers us the real thing. Do you know anything of John's mission? Does anything about your spiritual life reflect a posture of humility and repentance before the king? A posture that really does say, you know, it's not about me. 
Some of you may be here today and need to heed this summons of, of Mark to go back to the place that was the beginning of the gospel, a voice crying to you in the wilderness, come and, and repent and live and find his mercy and grace. And others of you might be standing in the wilderness right now. And you need to be reminded that as painful and bleak as it seems, it's the exact place where God lovingly shapes his children so that they move from being servants to to sons and daughters. Others of you may be in a different place today and you would say with sincerity, oh, I have known the desert and I have met the Lord there. And if you have, you should praise God because the good news begins when God draws near. This is about the Christ. It's about his reign and his glory and that's what we'll cover in the coming days and weeks and months. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in your steadfast love and faithfulness you chose to draw near to us. Sinners who deserve no hope, deserve no loving kindness from you, and yet you in your kindness chose to become poor and redeem us. We pray that you would warm our cold hearts and draw us near to King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.